Thank you, Pastor Randy. It's been uh, so wonderful thus far this morning to read the scripture together, to sing, uh, and now in just a moment, we'll be turning to uh, the book of Acts. Before we move into the message this morning, we wanted to take just a couple of minutes, uh, brothers and sisters, to just sort of update uh, all of us on where things are. It's hard to uh, believe we're this far in. We've been well past a month now in which we are adapting, trying to do ministry together differently uh, as a church. So just a couple of updates uh, from the elders that might be an encouragement to you this morning. You know, our mission as a church is to glorify God through lives being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, that mission moves ahead regardless of what's happening around us. And so we're still laboring together to work on that same mission that the Lord has given us. And the amount of ministry that's still happening is amazing. I imagine in some ways it's hard to get a sense of that uh, because of the disbursement that we're in. But so many of you have continued to serve faithfully in formal ways. There are uh, Zoom meetings that are happening uh, literally every day as uh, gospel communities, our small group ministries are gathering, the youth uh, are meeting, uh, there's some children's things that are taking place. Um, it's just remarkable the way in which you have uh, adapted and continue to love each other well. So I just want to thank you for that. And then, of course, on the more informal side of things, there are so many opportunities right now to be loving each other, to be helping one another. And uh, the stories of ways in which you are uh, helping and gathering groceries, um, making, helping each other make rent. We could just go on and on with all the ways in which you are uh, serving faithfully, aiming to show the truthfulness of the gospel by living out that demonstration of love. So just want to thank you, church, for how you're doing that. A couple of new initiatives that are going to be coming forward in the next week or two that you could be watching for. Uh, number one, starting not this coming week, but next week, uh, we'll begin something we're, we're just calling uh, very casually an evening with an elder. And so for uh, the next five weeks, starting next week, there'll be one night a week where an, an elder will get on a Zoom and we'll do a little bit of teaching from the scriptures. Then there'll be some time to pray and just share uh, what's happening in each other's lives. So we hope that'll offer another touch point. So the first one of those will be one week from tomorrow. So be watching for those. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll just spend a little more time in the scriptures and get a little FaceTime with each other. So if you're able to make one or two of those, that'd be great. We would love to see you. Um, a second thing is, as this time of pandemic uh, moves along, and none of us really know where it's going to end or when it's going to end, we are uh, hearing more and more and more of just this, this sense of, I'm ready for this to be over. And sometimes that comes with a, a, a refrain that sounds something like this. I wish things were just like they were. If we could only get back to the way things used to be. And brothers and sisters, isn't it like God that he would have something better for us in mind? And so we're going to be pushing forward some new um, initiatives, gathering some content together around the theme, Jesus is better. We're going to try to be capturing the idea that there are things in this experience that we're learning about God that we wouldn't have learned any other way. There are things we're learning about how we need brothers and sisters in Christ that we wouldn't have learned any other way. There are 
are things that we're learning about the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus to be all that we need that we wouldn't have learned any way, any other way. So it's not so much that we want to go back to the way things were, but we want to learn new things, grow in new ways because Jesus is better. So I'll be looking for some articles, uh, some videos, some interviews in the days ahead in which we're trying to capture that uh, theme. When uh, these uh, stay-at-home orders are lifted, uh, church know that your, your elders and your staff are thoughtfully praying and preparing for what exactly church ministry ought to look like then. We're thinking very likely it will be that there may be some limit on the number of people who could gather here in the auditorium. And so for, for the time being, we'll certainly gather this way, uh, virtually, and then we're imagining very likely that there'll be some transitional period where some of us will be here together, and then we'll also be adding uh, this feature online concurrent to that. So we're imagining there'll be some kind of scenario for a period of time where there'll be some people here and some people who are at home uh, tuning in this way. And so we're starting to work on that and pray and plan for that. So uh, hopefully we will be able to be as many of us together in the same room as possible. And as long as it's necessary, we'll be offering this uh, Zoom as well. Uh, finally, in terms of leadership, I wanna encourage you to be thinking about this as a re re remarkable time for showing neighbor love very near you in your apartment, in your condo, in your house, in your dorm, there is somebody who doesn't know Jesus. There's somebody who's been rattled by their circumstances. There's somebody who has some practical need. This may be one of the most remarkable times that the Lord presents in our lifetime for us to be showing neighbor love and showing that in an exceptional way by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So remember, church, that we have the very best news there is, and that ears are attuned, perhaps in new ways today. So look for opportunities in the coming week to make Christ known. Now, in just a moment, uh, we're going to move into the text. So if you have a Bible or an app, would you open up with me to Acts chapter 4? We'll be studying this morning Acts chapter 4, verses 32, through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. I'm really encouraged to share with you this morning that uh, Dr. Brian Arnold will be here uh, teaching, preaching for us from that text. Dr. Arnold is the president of Phoenix Seminary. Phoenix Seminary is a close partner with us here at Church on Mill. We're thankful for a relationship with them over a period of years, and uh, several of you watching have been through classes here at the church or are currently students at the seminary. We uh, love what the Lord is doing at the seminary to train up men and women for gospel ministry. And so uh, thank you, uh, Brian, for coming to preach for us this morning. Brian is uh, a former pastor, professor, and now serving as the new president of Phoenix Seminary. Hope you'll be praying for him if that's not something you're already doing as he leads the seminary through this time. Remember, as Brian is preaching that down at the bottom of your screen, there is that Q&A feature. So as Brian brings up things in the message you'd like to talk with him about or ask a question about, hit that button. You can send in a question. It won't go to everybody who's watching. It'll just come here to us. And uh, here at the end, at the end of the sermon, we'll be able to ask a few questions. But before Brian comes, let's hear the text read. 
And you're gonna now see and hear from a far more superior Newkirk, Abby Newkirk. Would you read for us, Abby? Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Good morning, Church on Mill. It is a great pleasure for me to be here this morning with you. I love Church on Mill. I love Chuck. I love the leadership team here. And uh, just know you've got cheerleaders at the seminary. We, we love what God is doing in and through your body here at Church on Mill. And uh, we love the partnerships like Chuck was mentioning. And I look forward to decades uh, more partnership as we move into the future. I wish we could be here together in person. I've never been able to preach to you face to face. And I know many of you are longing for that as well. And I wish you were here and we could do things even far more dangerous and crazy like shake hands. That'd be wonderful. But here we are distanced and trying to make the best of these kind of opportunities in the midst of the COVID crisis. One of the things that this reminds me of is just how often the New Testament talks about suffering and the challenges that come uh, through these types of, of circumstances. In fact, virtually much of the New Testament is written to a church that finds itself in these kind of crisis type of moments. Um, Severe teaching then comes to those who are suffering. Because think about how often the, the Bible says hard things, and it comes to people who are in the midst of these suffering types of times. The, the Bible doesn't leave the hard teaching for the smooth seas. In fact, I'm surprised how often it's when the, the storms of life are really raging that the Bible comes through with some of its sharpest kind of uh, teaching moments. I'm teaching a Bible study right now on Wednesday mornings uh, to a bunch of uh, older women, and it's been a delightful opportunity for me to do. 
and we're going through the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 10, this is what the author says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he promised. They were publicly shamed. They were imprisoned. Their property was plundered. And yet right before this, in, in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, it's the hardest warning to believers in all of the Bible. And so here was a church suffering, and the author still said, we need these kind of hard texts. Hard times require hard texts. And we can be tempted to want kind of these warm, fuzzy kind of messages, but the Bible just doesn't present it that way. It's in these moments that we actually need the hard teachings of God. Fair weather Christians just don't fare well when the vice grip of life squeezes. So persecution, plague, and poverty have always been the arena in which Christian virtue is most clearly seen. And so this is actually an opportunity. If we'll seize it, if we'll take this moment that we're in together and see what God might be doing through it, I think God might do remarkable things through uh, the church. But we must be able and willing to subjugate our fear to faith and be willing to live generously, even when it's hard. We're in the book of Acts. And uh, if you will remember, Acts actually comes as a two-volume set. Uh, the, the, uh, the apostle uh, Luke, uh, a disciple of Jesus, rather, wrote Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And these actually go together as one kind of big book. The book of Luke talks about the story of Jesus. We call it the gospel. And the book of Acts are how the First Christians lived out the teachings of Jesus called the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke kind of spotlights generosity in this, in this text we're going to look at today. Acts is, is this working out again of, of Jesus' teaching. So it's important for us to remember what did Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke that these early Christians are now trying to live out. If you remember, Jesus' commands are very serious in the Gospel of Luke. Things like family and possessions and money say everything about where our heart really lies. They're barometers that gauge our devotion to Christ. In Luke 14, 26 and following, Jesus calls on us to count the cost. We must be willing to forsake our family, our, our mothers, fathers, children, wives, husbands, e even your own life, or else you cannot be a disciple you must take up your cross and follow Jesus or you cannot be a disciple. And at the end of that exchange in Luke 14, Luke records Jesus saying, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christian, there, there are no two tiers of discipleship. There, there's not that tier of discipleship that says, I've renounced everything to follow Jesus. And the other uh, tier of discipleship that says, I've renounced some things to follow Jesus. Jesus says, unless we're willing to renounce all things, we cannot follow after him in Christian discipleship. Discipleship requires 
everything. And the reason for that is clear. If we take the whole Bible into account, if we treasure anything in this life, even close to the way that we treasure God, even if it's a good thing like family, then we become idolaters. Whenever the creature celebrates and worships something of creation more than the creator, we're idolaters. And that's Jesus' point in this. We can't love anything more than we love God. Or think about Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. It's the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What a radical difference from our world where we place so much worth on worth, where, where the things of this world are really what give us status and give us meaning in life. And yet Jesus says that our life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. And then remember what the, the rich fool does. Jesus says, imagine this man, he's got these barns and they don't fit everything he has. And so what does he do? He tears them down and he builds bigger barns and bigger barns and stores more of his stuff. And then Jesus said, God said to him, fool, this night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is this one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So it's this picture of this person who's just buying more storage units and building it up and more places to stuff all their things. And that night they die. And you don't take anything into the grave. And Jesus says, how foolish is it for us to, to build up all these things in life that don't last one more place I want to look at, Luke chapter 12, 32 through 34. And this is where I think the church in Acts 4 gets its mandate from Jesus. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And notice this sentence, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Could Jesus have been any clearer about how we handle money? Money is the test of the heart. Where's our true hope? Where's our true security? Where's our true love? Is it God and following him in Christian discipleship? Or is it in the fleeting things of this world? The way we approach money answers these questions. And the early church knew it, and Luke was sure to record how Christians responded. So the first thing he does is start off with kind of the good example there in Acts chapter 4. There's two portraits he gives, a portrait of generosity and a portrait of greed. And he even gives us personal snapshots to go along with this. We're going to see Barnabas, who actually sold everything and gave it. And then we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira, who said that they sold everything and gave it but they actually kept back a portion for themselves. So pick up with me again in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What a rich community this was. It, it, what is it that brought about so much generosity among these early Christians? I want to highlight a few things that I think Luke is pulling out of this story. First is that they're united in belief. We read that they're of one heart and one soul. There's a mutual understanding of the gospel. Their bond for God, for love of God and love of neighbor. They're living out the first two commandments. They have, they're, they're so overwhelmed with this love of God. It spills out into their love for others. And how could you not love others with the things that you have when you've been so loved by God? But I think what's crucial to note here is that they're together even on what the gospel is there's a mutual understanding and doctrine sits at the core of that i think sometimes we we, we want to see a community that is loving and kind and caring to one another and then we kind of shelf the doctrinal things thinking that that's just what causes create uh, strife and division and i think what the new testament authors would have us see is actually it's doctrinal unity that then allows a community like this to exist in generosity. So it begins with how we understand the gospel, being of one heart, one soul, one passion for Christ and the gospel, that out of that spills over into radical generosity for one another. Second, they didn't consider their possessions their own. And I think this is where people derail on a passage like this. They didn't sell everything and then live in poverty. There, there's no forsaking of individual property here, even. I mean, think about just the fact that the early church met in houses. At the very end of the book of Romans, Paul is praising those people who allow uh, the church to meet in their homes. Paul doesn't uh, scold them for having their own houses. He doesn't say, I can't believe you're having house church. You should sell those houses and give all the money to the poor. Uh, that's not the picture that we even see going on here in Acts 4. And we're going to see this with Ananias and Sapphira. The point is they don't have to give it all. The point is that they lied about doing that. And we're, we'll, we'll see that again. But the point is this. Christians didn't consider their property their own. God had given them wealth and possessions in order to love other people with them. Not that they couldn't enjoy the gifts God's given. That, that's not it. It's a reorientation of the mind where we remember that all Every good and perfect gift, as James tells us, comes down from the Father of lights. And he gives that to us, not just to bless us, but so that we can bless other people with those things as well. So how do you think about wealth? How do you think about possessions? Let me, let me ask it another way. Do you possess your wealth or does your wealth possess you? And that's the kind of question that I think the book of Acts is trying to get us to think about. Third, there's no need among them. Again, the focus is not on equalizing wealth. It wasn't, we've got rich people over here and poor people over here, and let's just try to make them all even across the board. Uh, people often think this is some sort of like Christian communism. And I don't think it's Christian communism. I think it's kingdom community. And it was these rich people being able to help the needs of the poor as those needs arose. Ajith Fernando says, community life is never an end in itself. A vibrant community is a community on mission. Community was built for something greater. This was just the overflowing and outpouring of what God was doing in their hearts and lives as he was bringing them salvation through the death of his son. I think one of the key verses that gets overlooked here is verse 34. And it's kind of sandwiched between these two verses about this radical kind of sharing. 
And I want to point your attention to it again, verse 30, 30, uh, actually 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The apostles had this great power and this great grace going out as they were preaching and testifying to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. And, and that power of the message even comes from the power of the community that was being created. As people looked on and saw, what, is, what does a Christian community look like? So it's not just that we have this great testimony about Jesus. That's true, but people want to see that lived out. And in the early church, they saw this lived out, and that increased the power of the preaching testimony. And as the power of the preaching testimony went out, and the kingdom began to grow, and the church began to grow, and there was more kingdom community like this, you can see how that momentum gets going. And, and that's what the Church of Acts looks like, and that's why we look at that with fond nostalgia, wondering what a a true kingdom community like that would be. It's what set Christians apart. People in their community didn't go hungry or without shelter. It's how kingdom-minded people care for one another. And then he gives us this uh, specific example, the example of Barnabas. Barnabas, as you'll see, had this extra field. He sold it off. He gave freely, generously, and completely. The text doesn't say Barnabas sold everything he, he owned and gave it all away. Instead, it probably was a piece of property that he, he knew there was a specific need that had arisen. And he said, this worldly possession of this property doesn't matter as much to me as the need of the people that I serve alongside in this church. And I'm going to sell it and I'm going to make sure that their needs are met. Barnabas is the example of using stuff that God has given him for the kingdom. But Luke isn't done there. He wanted to give a good example. What does generosity look like? But he also wanted to show us what greed looks like and how that was handled in the early church. So pick up with me then in verse one of chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell dead and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, sure did. Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. 
It's not accidental that these two stories bump up against each other. Some acted with virtue, some acted with vice. Barnabas was generous, Ananias and Sapphira were greedy. And there's lessons, just like we learned lessons from Barnabas. Here's a few things I think we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira. First, they wanted the appearance of generosity. Remember the story, they held some back. So they, they sold this piece of land and let's say they got a thousand bucks and wanted to give 500, but pretend like that was the full amount. And we see this when he cross-examined Sapphira, you know, was this really the full amount? And he's given her the chance to come clean and to confess the truth. And she follows the line of her husband, not realizing that he's already out back buried and that she'll follow him soon. And she lies again. They wanted this appearance of generosity. They wanted people to think that they were as generous as Barnabas was. So picture the scene. I, I just imagine this. Ananias sells it. He comes in and he's got this basket full of money. And he wants, remember, he wants the praise of people. And he's bringing it in and he sets it down. And he's just like, oh man, I'm just so happy I could serve the Lord like this. I, I imagine the, the poor people in the community saying to him, Man, Ananias, we love you. Thank you for being so generous. And he's just got the all shucks. I'm just happy to do what I can do. You know, all glory to God. I'm just here to help the church because he wants the praise. He wants to have his cake and to eat it too. And it's ironic that in Hebrew, Ananias means the Lord is gracious. The Lord had been gracious with Ananias and given him all these things. And Ananias returned the Lord's graciousness with greed. Second, greed is spiritual warfare. Notice the question, why has Satan entered your heart? It's kind of like what we see in the Gospels with Judas, where Satan enters his heart to do what is wrong. But then even Peter acknowledges that it's, it's Ananias' own sinful heart a few verses later that this is coming from. Like all other sins, sin is born in the heart. This couple wanted two things. They wanted to be praised for generosity, and they wanted to keep their wealth. And we brothers and sisters, have to guard against the same whispering of the serpent of old that comes, slithers up to our ear, and tells us to crave the things of this world. We have to be weaned. Everything in, in life is pushing us towards covetousness, is having us lust for more. I think about the whole field of advertising and marketing is designed to create us to want things that most often we don't even need. And we find ourselves chasing these things all the time. Our heart just craves it. And that was the same for Ananias. And it can be the same for us if we're not careful following uh, the lies of the devil. Third, the field is his. He didn't have to give it. This is what's amazing about this text. Ananias could have sold it. And it sounds like he could have bought a nice yacht, headed out to the Mediterranean and, and come back on Sunday morning and everything would have been fine. Uh, or he could have sold it and just said, I want to give half of this to the church. And people would have still praised him for his generosity. And he would have been fine. The fact is, it was his field. God had given it to him. And it was his right to do with what he wanted. We, we got to be careful not to overteach passages like this. I feel like when we read these, some people feel the pressure that they've got to go home right now, sell every last thing they own, and live like some Christian vagabond. And I don't think that's what Luke has in mind here. And it wasn't the, even the example of the early church. As I said before, we even see private property still as a thing uh, maintained. And Christian history is just riddled with people who felt guilty about passages like this and gave it all up. And you know what they depended on? They depended on the people in the church who didn't do that to help share and give for their needs. So that's not, again, the picture. It was his field to do with. The, the point is, 
to pursue open-handed generosity with those in the household of faith, especially. The field is yours. Your house is yours. Your investment accounts are yours, but not really, right? This is the reorientation of thinking. It is true that those are things God's given us to steward and to steward wisely, but they, they are ours underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the way we use those matters greatly to God. Fourth, and I'm going to pick this up as just a really brief aside, but it's important. The spirit is God. It's not central to the point of this text, uh, but, but it's a really great picture. And one of the great places you can go in the Bible, if somebody says, how do we know the Holy Spirit is God? Well, one of the ways we do that is we look here and Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, which is lying to God. So we see the, the Spirit's divinity even here. Fifth, judgment brought fear. The church simply could not be marked by lies or sin like this, especially in its early existence. Sin had to be dealt with to the utmost degree. Look again just at verse 11, what happened. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The church is a place of holiness. The church is a place where the people of God should be striving together to stir one another up to holiness and good deeds before God. If sin is allowed to run rampant in the church, it will have devastating effects on the community that God is trying to build. And the same thing with the early church. By sending this out as kind of a shockwave across the early church, people knew God takes these things very seriously. Scholars call it a judgment miracle. It is a miracle. God might not work like this now. Maybe you've even lied in the past about what you give to the Lord. And you may see that the fact that you didn't die right away, you might mistake his patience and delay as ignorance or apathy, but it's not true. The judge of all the earth has a great memory. He's forgotten nothing. And he's given you this opportunity as a chance for repentance and to turn to him. And I pray you'll do that if you've been in that situation. We need to learn from this husband and wife just as much as we learned from the story of Barnabas as well. That We can be generous people or greedy people. So what do we do with a text like this today? If we're honest, a text like this, it excites us and it scares us all at the same time. And quite frankly, we've probably never really seen a church living this out in the way that we see it in the book of Acts. But we want to be like this. We want to live with our hands open. We want to be generous people. Again, we read these texts and we say, I would love to be part of a church like that. We got to be careful because a lot of times we think, I want to see other people being generous. But it starts with us. So could you imagine Church on Mill during the COVID-19 crisis especially looking like this. I was so encouraged already to hear Chuck mention how many of you are serving one another already. What a great opportunity to look like the Acts 4 church. We're always wondering what it would look like for these times to come of pressure and how the church would respond. And this is our opportunity. Again, we don't want to miss it. But what is it that does keep us back from sharing, from being as generous as maybe God would want us to be? I think the first thing is consumerism. You don't give because you don't have because you mindlessly spend. You find yourself walking through the aisles at Target and you went for two or three things and all of a sudden your shopping cart's full of things you didn't go there for in the first place. And when it comes time to be generous, it's not there because we've become part and parcel of the consumeristic society in which we find ourselves. Or maybe it's reputation. You, you feel like you have an image to uphold 
or an image to fake. You want to pretend like you're at a different status than maybe you are. Maybe you're just craving that kind of thing. So it matters what you drive and what you wear uh, and, and those kind of secondary concerns. But it's all about building up a reputation, keeping up with the Joneses. And you'll bleed your finances to death to pull it off. Or it could be the American dream. I got to have that house. I got to have that car, the white picket fence, the education, the investments, the boat, the motorcycle, the clothes, the retirement account. And if I get all of those things that I know kind of gives me the certain level of status and comfort in this society, in this world today, then I would be happy to bring the crumbs left over and bring them to the apostles' feet and be generous with that. But remember King David who said, I will not give that which costs me nothing. And sometimes, especially in moments like this, it might require the sacrifices of things we don't really need for the needs of other people. So it could be the American dream, or it could be practical concerns. I think probably a lot of you watching this right now, it's nothing extravagant. You want to take care of your family. You need a house. You need a car. You need a job. And to get to the job, you need a car. I get all those things. You need an education and you want security too. And the Bible talks a lot about how we should wisely steward the resources that God has given us. Those are good things. To want to take care of your family is a good, biblical, godly thing. But when we lean on money and stuff for security more than God, that's when it becomes a bad thing. And I think COVID is one of those times that the, the magnifying glass comes out and really examines our heart to see if we really were leaning on our money as our security or on God as our security. When the market begins to dip, does that create undue fear and panic in your heart? Because truth be told, that's where your security is. And I know a lot of people who, who will use practical concerns as their excuse never to give. They, they just say, once we get to this level, then I'll know my family's taken care of and then I can give. But that's always a moving goalpost. As soon as you, you hit that mark, you just say, you know, if we just had a little bit more, a little bit more, and actually what started as a practical concern turns into that consumerism or the American dream that we were talking about before. So remember, it could be consumerism. It could be reputation. It could be the American dream. It could be practical concerns. C-R-A-P. Paul talked about all these things before his conversion as scubula, this refuse, this trash that needs to be taken out. We need to get these things out of our life so that we can follow and obey God with the way we give. Moments like this call for a word on generosity. It's a hard word. This is not an easy text as people are really sincerely concerned if their resources will reach. So how can we even be concerned with giving at a time like this? But let me tell you, in Acts 4, they're dealing with the same kinds of things of frequent plagues and persecutions that are breaking out. And yet it's in that arena that their generosity comes forward. Let's get real practical for a minute. It could be sharing out of the abundance of your toilet paper that you've been hoarding. Maybe you were one of the ones who got there early to the store and you've got closets just full of Charmin because you really think that that's going to be your, be your biggest concern coming up. And maybe one of those families of five didn't get to the store quite as soon. And you could look down on them in condescension and say, well, too bad. You didn't get there and, and, and get them before the aisles went clear. Or you could say, let me help you. Let me help your family. And it could be, of course, far more practical concerns. It could be the groceries. 
It could be helping people with rent as people, even in this church, find themselves furloughed or underemployed or unemployed. Maybe they can't make rent. Maybe they're going to lose their homes. Is that a time that you're going to step up and invite them into your house until they get back up on their feet? This is the time, Christian, to step up, to stand in that gap, to show the world that wealth is not our God. Our God is in the heavens and he's building this beautiful community here. And we can be that if we're going to be generous with what God has given to us. This plague has brought out some nasty things of selfishness, greed, and hoarding, but beautiful things also come of generosity and sharing and loving. It's a beautiful thing when the church rises up to care for her people. And, and I'm telling you, the world will look, look on jaw dropped at this community. And that could be what God uses to increase to our number daily, those who are being saved. At bottom line, it's time to put our money where our faith is. So I wanna ask you two questions as we draw to a close. What holds you back from being generous? And the second thing are, what specifically can you do during this pandemic, during coronavirus, to see needs among your brothers and sisters and meet those out of the abundance of what God has given you? Remember, we need to possess our wealth, not to be possessed by our wealth. Thank you very much for uh, being here with me this morning. Again, it's a great privilege to preach for you, and I look forward to our time together in the Q&A. Thank you, Dr. Brian Arnold. Very encouraging, helpful time in the text uh, today. And uh, again, brothers and sisters, if you have any questions, feel free to click that button down at the bottom, send those in. And in just a few minutes, we'll spend some time uh, considering the things that you raise. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we thank you that all these years later, your word is still timely, it's still powerful, still effective. So meets us exactly at our point of need. That's miraculous. It's an evidence of your presence, your power, your kindness, your love, your truth. And we pray now that your people would hear your word effectively. We pray, Lord, that this word would fall on good soil, that we, in kindness and love, would put it into practice. Not, of course, to earn something or merit some new favor from you, but simply out of gratitude for what you've already given us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our Savior gave all things, even his life. And because he gave all things and now lives in us by the Spirit, we have the the power through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ by means of the Spirit within to live generous lives. Lord, where we need to turn from greed, we want to turn from greed not simply by trying hard, but by looking up and by remembering the extent of your grace and kindness to us, your mercy in the gospel, we want to turn from greed, turn to you in your grace, and then look out at the world around us, first to brothers and sisters in Christ, and then to the world, 
and to live with a generosity that is commensurate to the generosity we have been shown in Christ. We pray that reorientation would be happening even now as we pray together. Father, this week, maybe even this morning, before this Zoom ends, would you, by your Spirit, set on our minds, each of us, someone with a, a tangible need that we can experience the truthfulness of what Brian shared with us this morning by living it out, by seeking to meet needs. Lord, we desire to be a church family that is known not for how many people there are who make up this body, but for how big and powerful and mighty and life-changing our God is. And really where the rubber meets the road in many ways is how we handle our money and our possessions that you've entrusted to us. Thank you for giving us a time such as this where we can press in and really experience the way in which the gospel changes every nook and cranny of our hearts. Father, thank you for all the ways where we're already experiencing this, already seeing it. Thank you that in your providence, it's, it's not so much as a starting of something that hasn't been there in this particular church, but Lord, of going deeper and further in. We pray you grow our trust in you and that we would both give in radical ways to the church family the budget of the church, and then beyond to the personal needs that people have. Lord, we thank you for how you meet our needs in Christ. We pray not only would we share what we have, but when we have needs, God, that in humility we would let those be known that they might be met by you through your people. Father, of course, the supreme need that we have is to be right with you. And if there are people this morning who are tuning in, who have yet to experience the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, who have yet to be united with you, then we pray, Lord, that they would take up their Bibles or look up one online if they don't have it, that they'd read some of these texts that Dr. Arnold discussed from Luke They'd read on in Luke and hear the truth about Jesus. And we pray that salvation would come to them and their whole household. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. And we look forward to how we will be encountering you in new ways through these experiences. We pray all of this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.